I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to um, Matthew chapter 9, Matthew 9, 18 through 34, that's the Red Pew Bible, page 919, I encourage you to turn there if you're, you're able to follow along. In 1990, Terry Schiavo, a young woman of only 26 years of age, suffered sustained brain injury from suspicious circumstances in her home, with her home, in her home with um, her husband Michael. And when paramedics arrived, she was revived, but she was not responsive. She, her body was revived, and she was in a post-coma unresponsiveness. Uh, that's the term that has been uh, used of late for what was then called a persistent vegetative state. You'll probably remember that term. I can't be cons completely certain, but I would suspect that because of all the litigation and all the publicity, that that, that harsh-sounding term was restructured uh, to be a little bit more palatable to people's ears. Um, at the time of her actual death, uh, when her feeding tube was uh, removed, uh, irreversibly pulled for the last time in 2005, Abby and I were young parents. Uh, we were uh, in Ontario just starting to get our family going, and it was big news. It was uh, heartrending, and it was also polarizing for many people. Um, people began to ask themselves, what does it mean to be um, alive, and uh, is the quality of one's life the measure by what it means to live? And uh, in 2005, you'll recognize that that was very close to 2001 and 9-11, uh, and it was a time of urgency, it was a time of sensitivity. In those days, Christians were um, even more spiritually sensitive, I believe, than some Christians are today, and uh, people were beginning to ask themselves, what does it mean to be spiritually alive, to be born again? And I believe that during uh, those years after 9-11, there was a movement of the Holy Spirit uh, breathing life into people. There was a, uh, a heightened uh, spirituality that was, and there are seasons in which the Holy Spirit does seem to blow more clearly than at other seasons. Not that he isn't working, but it just, there's time periods in which a fire catches, and it seems as though there's a whole lot more movement in the hearts and minds of people. It's as if, you, you will, they wake up out of a persistent vegetative state. They become more aware, they become more alive to to the reality of God who rules over all and is immediately involved in their own lives, people become more sensitive to the Spirit. And I want to help us to think about coming to this text that we're going to read to realize that there are four miracles in this text which are set within a context of Jesus with the Holy Spirit bringing life to people newness of life for some. Yes, they're living, but they weren't living to the fullest capacity that they were designed for. And all of these elements are intended as a pictorial view of how the Holy Spirit works and breathes within people to cause them to become more awake and aware to His own reality. And throughout Jesus' teaching, His teaching, His calling of people, His healing, in, it's endued with the Holy Spirit. Ever since His baptism, we are to read the twin action of the Son and the Spirit working. And so, let's read this text now uh, before I go further so we can see this together. In chapter 9, verse 18, after a discussion about what it means to, to, to be inclusive of people who have been forgiven and not having systems of shame, he then is immediately approached by someone in verse 18, and while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come, lay your hand on her, 
and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one hears, knows about it. And they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, who was mute, uh, was brought to him. And when the demon had cast out, uh, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now, in this text, I want us to be able to see, Lord willing, at the end here, that this, this central thought and idea is that Jesus' mercy, united with faith, brings newness of life by the Holy Spirit. This is a doctrinal truth. I believe that Matthew, in his writing, was setting up pictorial illustrations of spiritual truth. Yes, physical healings occurred, but the disciples later would observe truth in these actions and write about them in their letters. Newness of life is mercifully bestowed to those who are severely limited by the effects of sin so that they may enjoy life and to be able to have it more abundantly. And Jesus' his, his, his miracles, I believe, are intended to teach us how the Spirit enlightens the eyes of our heart. It's a phrase that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 1. Intended to teach us how the Spirit enlightens the eyes of our heart so that we might enjoy life even now as we anticipate the fullness of eternal life, we have a taste of that now in this current life. Now, in verse 18 to 26, we have twin miracles, and I believe that what's being taught here is that the Holy Spirit awakens us from the stupor of death. These two miracles are always intertwined throughout the Scriptures. They're, they're, you go to Mark, and you go to Luke, and you go to uh, John doesn't record these because he's aware that they're also recorded by his other apostles, but in those other accounts, they're always intertwined because how do you separate these two from one another? You know, Jesus is, is on his way to heal, and he heals in the midst of on his way to heal. And uh, there is a heightened uh, interest in these uh, miracles because there is a rescue of two females, a rescue of two females. Yes, it's the father coming, but he's coming on behalf of his daughter. And there is an older female who's in desperation and need herself. And I look at this and I recognize a doctrinal truth illustrated here for us that Jesus' ability to free is without prejudice. He heals all kinds of people. He breathes life into all kinds of people. And this would be particularly these illustrations of the inclusivity of Christianity would be very, very encouraging in the first century. That culture was harsh, harsh on women, just as it is harsh today. Uh, the harshness today, actually, 
comes more from our elite class of people, the educated elite academy, academy people, um, who are adopting, I believe, a view of humanity that's very parallel to the first and second century world that these events occurred in. There was an early church heresy called Gnosticism in the early centuries that threatened the stability of Christianity itself. Now, you're not maybe familiar with the heresy of Gnosticism. I know it's not something I always think about every day, but the heresy actually had a very low view of gender because they prioritized what they believed was perfection and oneness. As you know, in gender, there is duality. And so, in the very early centuries, their thought was that the one was good, the one being perfection, and anything other than that that maybe even looked like the one is a shadow and it's not as good as the one. Now, I know this is very philosophical. Let's put this down on a lower level. I borrow this illustration from Michael Reeve, uh, who very uh, picturesquely talks about this viewpoint. This may feel like a distraction, but I'm, I assure you this is not a distraction. So, imagine yourself living inside of a room. You can decorate that room any way you'd like. It is your room. You make it as comfortable as you like. You set it up with beautiful tapestries and interiors. Anything that excites you, I would personally want bowls of Reese cups sitting there and some things that, like, like perpetual, ongoing happiness. I, there's another one. And, and coffee, yes, yes. Sorry, I need a cup of coffee to catch that uh, this morning. But you have a dog in that room, and the dog violates the room. You who have dogs in your house know what I'm talking about. And so you get up, you scrape that up, and you toss it outside of the room. And as an analogy, God exists in that beautiful room, and what He tosses out of Himself is creation, and it's a lot like that thing that you scraped up off the floor. It's nasty. And the world that we live in is that nasty world, and the effort to get back to the one, I mean, come on, we live in a culture that knows about nirvana, right? This is not something new under the sun. The effort to get to the one is what is most preferred, and this follows into thinking about gender, because if we're made in the shadow of God, then we are inferior to God, and we're not, we're not great. But then what does that do for women who were taken out of man? It destroys their own gender identity. And maybe you can already see where I'm going with this. In the very first centuries, the Gnostics who tried to introduce their philosophical thinking into Christianity developed gospels that they named for apostles, and they were not true. The Gospel of Thomas, for one, uh, has this line at the very end, and listen carefully to what he says. This is not true. This is a fake rendering. Simon Peter said to them, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you, your, you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that something? That which is new is really very old. Why are people reluctant to define gender? Well, it is the hard separation of the physical of the soul from our bodies that is of interest to these academic elites, trying to find that absolute equality with the one. And gender fluidity and finding equilibrium with the one is the goal. But nevertheless, this treats women horribly, horribly, harshly. Men who make themselves into women hurt women, and we hurt women by encouraging them to become men, 
This is not ultimately good for our world. Christianity has something to say, and Christianity has always, in its purest teaching, encouraged people to flourish in the genders that they have been assigned. You know, Christianity had something to say when the gospel was going to India in the 18th century, when brides were being burned with their deceased husbands. Very similar concept. That gender is not as valuable or important. And so we also have something purposely to say about the degradation of women even today. True freedom comes not through the destruction of our bodies, but through the mercy of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and to make us to flourish, to be whole. In regard to children, Jewish culture was unique because it guarded the sanctity of human life. Non-Jewish families may have a good appreciation for their offspring, but not all of them might. And they, if they already had a daughter and they were hoping for a son to be an heir for the family, they might take that little child and sit it beside the road. And maybe someone would come up and pick it up, and, and that child then might become a, a household slave. Or maybe worse, it would die of exposure or animals. It's no wonder that Christianity, as I said, appealed to women. Christianity also refused to overlook the infidelity of husbands. Some men may feel that our culture has diminished masculinity, but the answer is not to rule one's home with an iron fist of fear. The answer is to model the sacrificial love of the Son for the Father. And this exists in the very heart of God because God is not simply one. He is a complexity of three. God is love. This requires more than the one. You know, the Islamic approach is to keep their women in a state of fear without protections, and this in, due, in part is because they don't believe in more than one. Allah is one. Allah doesn't exist as having an internal object affection as we do in the Trinity. And therefore, he rules his house and he rules his people with an iron fist of fear. No, love casts out fear. And as I said, Christianity rightly ordered, because we don't always practice it as we ought to, what it does, though, is it has two drawing close together in mutual love for one another and respect for each other, and that creates a unity and a bond that mirrors the triunity of God. And our culture is on a major, major shift right now where women, now more than ever in our history, are being oppressed. We must take the gospel of Jesus Christ to a suffering world. There are people who are confused about who they are, and they need the liberating truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what people need. Male, female, bond-free, Jew or Greek, we all must be born again to enter into the kingdom of heaven. This has been the battle cry of Christianity through the ages. And I see in this text that Jesus frees without any prejudice. And it's a beautiful picture. It was engaging in the first and second century, and it ought to also fill us with excitement because people are going to desire that because they were created for that. Jesus not only has the ability to free without prejudice, He also has the ability to awaken without limits. Verses 18 to 19, you, you, you see now even more in the storyline, you can even see uh, this occurring. And I use the word awaken be, rather than death because Jesus sees the man's daughter as neither dead nor mostly dead. Rather, she's asleep. Now, it's interesting, and I, 
I know Matthew records this slightly different than Mark and also Luke. And uh, in Mark and Luke, there's this uh, other aspect of pleading, pleading with Jesus that He would come so that she might not die. Yet Matthew shows the man pleading for, it would appear to us, she's already dead. He's looking for a resurrection. I think the fact checkers would be all over this. Is Matthew in error because he's making it more concise? I don't think so. Matthew is collapsing the detail here to highlight, rather, the limitless ability of Jesus. You don't want to miss that point. And the deep faith of the Father in Jesus, the Father knows that He has a limitless ability. Now, it may be that they told the Father that by the time you get back from going to get Jesus, your daughter is going to have already passed. And so, it's very reasonable that in his conversation here, he's recording, as I said, the collapsed version of, like, of the whole thing. We don't need to get hung up on that detail. But the truth is that the limitless ability of Jesus is highlighted, and highlighted because death was likely occurring even before He returned. And it's an emphasis on the extremity of the situation. To awaken a physical body that seems to have expired. But it also demonstrates His ability to awaken the spiritually dead from those who are the walking dead. You remember what Jesus said to the scribe who wanted to get into his boat just a chapter ago to follow him, and he asked permission, though, first to go and to bury his dead. And Jesus illustrated that he has the capacity to observe those who we think are living and actually to say, no, no, those are people who are dead. He can identify the living He can identify those who appear to be dead who are really sleeping. That's a unique claim. Only God can make that claim to know the living from among the dead, spiritually dead. And there are a lot of dead men and women who the Spirit will awaken. I want to ask you a personal question. Do you believe that Jesus is able to save those you love. Those who completely, they seem to be completely dead. Like, there's no hope for that family member. Why are you saying that? Why are you thinking that? This man's faith is remarkable. My, that we would have that degree of faith that we would be able to see Him as able to awaken those whom we think are beyond the capacity of saving. He believes that Jesus only needs to place His hands on her. Now, Jesus had illustrated multiple times the power to, to harness the temporal world What about beyond where no one has ever gone before? When Jesus reached the house in verse 23, he was met with a conversation, a commotion, that is. There was flutes playing. There was professional wailers already in high gear. And the contrast here with disbelief and belief is remarkable. Jesus pronounces this weeping as not necessary because the child is, is from his vantage point, she's, she's merely sleeping, and they start to laugh because, because they don't have the eyes to see. They, they aren't able to see what Jesus sees. They don't, they don't have that capacity. And the mourners laugh in verse 24, and in verse 25, you know, Jesus, as it were, casts 
them out of the house. It's like he, he, he removes them and puts them outside. I think we've seen that before, haven't we? Like removing that which is darkness from a person. There's a picture here. I don't want to overstate that. But he's going to cast out death just in a moment. And Jesus asks the unbelieving to leave. And he only brings faith into the room. Peter, James, John, parents, we read this in the other accounts. Here we have it very simple. Jesus goes in because he can see. You know, miracles of resurrection had occurred before, but not nearly for 800 years. Children were raised from the dead under the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. But the difference between Elisha and Jesus is that Elisha and Elijah prayed to God for the power. Jesus doesn't pray. He just takes the child by the hand and lifts her up, and she's instantly awake. She's resurrected from the dead. What a beautiful illustration of his, his limitless power. This is a beautiful account of the physical resurrection, but it is also intended to put us, to give us the confidence in Jesus' ability to awaken spiritually dead people. He can breathe new life into those whom you dearly love, who you are tempted to turn off and say, I don't want anything more to do with you because He can breathe new life into those whom you love or hate. It doesn't matter. He can do it. And I know this is a physical illustration of the spiritual because in the very next teaching point, when we, when we finish this, this segment of miracles, the very next teaching point, we see these teaching points periodically, and we come to verse 37. In verse 37, Jesus sees the crowds, and He recognizes that these people are, are dispersed. Verse uh, 37, harassed. They're harassed by dead leaders. Leaders who have no life. They're with, it's like they're, they're without a shepherd, and he, he, he knows that they have great needs, and He's going to say, pray therefore the Lord of the harvest that He will send forth laborers into His harvest. This is how I know that this is an illustration of the spiritual. And he tells his followers, followers he's planning to send out fishermen and hunters and farmers to gather in the, the harvest. And so what this tells us is that we can have confidence to pray earnestly to the Lord for those we love. And we can expect to see the work of God opening blind hearts and giving people an awakening to truth. When people have come to recognize that their idea of how to find happiness will actually ruin them, people that we would say, those people are so far away, it may be that it is a merciful moment intended to bring about awakening. These people are in an extreme. They're looking to Jesus for help that only He can give. And it's an encouragement that we would pray earnestly and specifically for those whom we know and love. This also shows us that Jesus has the ability to help without any effort at all. Like, and kind of sandwiched here in the middle, I've jumped over this to, to, to emphasize the, the, the little, little girl's healing. Now, think about the older lady here in the mix, verse 20 to 22. Jesus, um, verse 20, it says, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned, and seeing her, said, Take heart, daughter, 
your faith has made you well. What a beautiful moment there. This poor woman, can you imagine how physically weak she must be? Twelve years hemorrhaging? She's probably anemic. Like, some of us who have had illness recently have felt the weight of, like, fatigue. Like, this 12 years of this kind of fatigue? She gets this idea that she doesn't need Jesus to touch her. She actually could just simply touch the tassel on his garment, and that would be all that she needed to do, right? And again, this, this illustrates the, the effortlessness, the effortless ability of Jesus, and the deep faith of the woman who believed in the effortlessness. Now, I say effortlessness because sometimes we you know, we think about power from our vantage point as limited beings. You know, what does it take to get a SpaceX or a rocket off the ground, right? That's a lot of kilojoules to get that thing off the ground. It takes a lot of effort. So, we want to excavate a mountain. That's a lot of power that's required and a lot of earth movers to move it. But you know, God is lean. God is green. He doesn't need to split an atom. He doesn't need to turn on any water generators. His word is all that's needed. And this is what makes this miracle so beautiful. How utterly effortlessly Jesus, you know, he touched the, the child's hand. This, this person touched Jesus. What beauty in this effortless miracle. And Jesus responds to her and says, you know, your, your faith has made you completely well. Her faith, it was in Jesus' ability, was the conduit by which grace flowed. And this ought to encourage all of us we ought to all pray because Jesus' disposition towards those we love is that they would be healed. This is His disposition of gracious desire to heal those who are weak and in need. We need to pray that they are mercifully brought to newness of life by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's also true for us here even today if you've ever thought, what must I do to be saved? All you need to do is call out to Him as if you were touching His tassel. His disposition towards you is that of love and desire to free you, to, to, without prejudice, He wants you to be born again. He wants to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Call upon Him. He will not turn you away. He will effortlessly fill you with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' mercy, united with faith, brings newness of life by the Holy Spirit. And in the last grouping of miracles, I want us to see that the Holy Spirit frees us to enjoy living with others. Enjoy living with others. Verse 17, uh, 27 through 34. I, I will read these in sections, but the first grouping is the two blind men. The, the two blind men who have their eyes opened, and the last grouping is someone who has other senses repaired. And they're, they're related to one another because of the physical senses and the restoration of speaking, the restoration of hearing, the restoration of seeing, it establishes the possibility of effective communication with others. Restoration of people who have had a hard time with community and drawing them into relationship with others. Jesus opened the eyes of two men in response to their crying aloud. They call out frequently, have mercy upon us, son of David. Have mercy upon us. They couldn't physically see, but yet they see what others refused 
to see. There was faith there. There was faith there. Now, let's read this account and notice a couple of details. Verse 27, as they passed on from there, two men followed him crying aloud, have mercy upon us, son of David. When entering the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away, spread his fame throughout that district. They see Jesus as Messiah. And this is a very provocative term. This is very provocative. They're right, of course, as to who he is. Why do you think that Jesus would ask them whether or not they believe? He hasn't done this in other situations. In fact, even the lady herself, the lady herself, he didn't ask that of her. She simply touched him. And I believe here that the blind men may not actually be aware that they were having faith in Jesus. You know, you can, you can come hungry, you can come even to a congregation and downplay, oh, I don't have enough faith. No, 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 no. Jesus knows whether you believe or not, but He also wants you to say it out loud, to profess it, to be baptized to proclaim to others that you believe in Jesus Christ's ability to forgive you of your sins, to heal you of what your heart hungers for. And they did have faith, and Jesus points that out to them that they are believing, and He's illustrating this to others who see what's going on. Now, there are times where Jesus chose to intervene without the expression of faith, God initiated, Jesus initiated saving of people who were either weak in their faith, like the disciples in the boat, or having no faith whatsoever because of demonic indwelling. Jesus healed a mother-in-law without Peter's pleading. And this tells something of Jesus' disposition. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He initiates grace. And this ought to be encouragement to us to turn from sin and to believe the truths of the gospel for ourselves. Faith, as I said before, faith is a conduit through which grace flows. And while God's grace is effectual by movement of the Holy Spirit, He is glorified in our expression of faith when we see Him as being gracious to us. He is glorified through our faith. You know, there's something else going on here that's a little bit below the surface. These people who couldn't physically see, they knew what was going on. You know, it's really hard to be a part of a community in which everyone else sees, but you can't see. You know, these, these men who were physically blind were a part of a group of people who said, at the end of this segment, they said, never was anything like this done in Israel. They could see it. They knew what was happening. But there was this other group of people who at the end in verse 34 said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. They're in another group of people and there's going to be conflict between those who can see and those who can't see. Division occurs in the midst of a meta-narrative, a story, a narrative that's going out, and there's people who can't actually see what's going on, and those maybe who are in charge are living in another world. I think we've lived through this over the last two to three years. You can't help but let your mind go there. Division occurs. 
And this is also true in spiritual situations. The Pharisees were outside of the community of grace because they doubled down. They chose to believe a lie. They're in darkness. They're not in light. See, the gospel is intended to free us so that we can all see the same thing, hear the same thing, and speak the same thing. We are brought into a community, a fellowship, where you can actually have meaningful relationships. And that can only happen when we are all agreed about the deity, the blood of Jesus Christ, that we are justified by faith alone and not by works. This, this is what makes a community a community of faith. We all have to see these things. We also, in the last miracle here, see the other senses being alleviated. We have, now, in verse 32, there's this word name, this word mute. Now, we don't use this word often, but that's in a technical word for someone who, because they cannot hear, they've never learned how to speak with their mouth. And so, they're not, they're not engaging with the world. They're quiet. They're mute. And that's the word that's used there. And because Jesus opens his ears, he's then able to speak. But what's remarkable is that he's able to speak, and he must make some sense. Otherwise, those who would hear those words for the first time might not know what he's saying. And the last miracle allows him to engage with community. Now, there's a demonic aspect to this in which there is a, a demon there that's suppressing, and, and Jesus alleviates this. And uh, I, it reminded me, actually, of one of the more famous deaf people that has lived in our last century, early 1900s. Um, Helen Keller, who also happened to be blind, too. Some of us may have read about her story in elementary school or middle, middle school. I remember that through therapy, she actually learned how to talk by feeling the vocal cords of others and kind of learned how to kind of feel that so that she could communicate. And uh, at one time, she, she gave a speech on a platform, and at the end of her speech, there was a clapping, and she could feel the vibrations in the floor, and she said out loud, thank you for your applause. I can feel it. And the crowd just went wild, and they clapped even louder for her. You know, when you cannot hear what others are saying, you're less likely to engage in conversation. Um, some of us, as we get older, have to like lean in a little bit closer, and maybe noise in the foyer is challenging, and it makes it harder, and you don't want necessarily the community. It's not because you don't desire the community, it's because it's, it's hard. You, you're having a hard time with it. And when you can't see, it's hard to read body language to know how people are really, what they're really saying. This is also true in the spiritual world for men and women. Jesus said that if the lamp of your body is not well, you're not going to be able to see properly. You're going to interpret the world. If you're hurt inside and you're not whole, you're going to interpret everyone else wrongly. And you won't be able to live in community well. You want to help people take the speck that's in their eye, but you've got this log coming out of your eye? You're not going to do well with community. And I see in this, this illustration of what we find in the epistles of the need for change internally so that we can engage and live and walk in the community of faith properly. When Jesus wakes you up, He restores you and your senses. You start to become more aware that you are a sinner and that maybe others are sinners, and then you start to teach, you know, approach others with grace and give grace. And, and even Christians can go through phases where they're, they're growing and they get it, and then they, they need to kind of relearn this again, and the Spirit's there to assist them in it. It's, it's growth and maturity. But you're, you're put on a track because the Holy Spirit comes within you to help you to see yourself properly and the forgiveness that you desperately need. 
you learn how to live in a community of faith, the faith that is called, the community that is called the church. But this is also true in little churches of our own families. We learn how to live well with one another. And that's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It liberates. And it allows us to be able to function well in community. It frees us up so that we can easily live with others. And so all of these are illustrative, I believe, of rich doctrinal truth that Jesus' mercy, when united with faith, brings newness of life by the Holy Spirit. These ten miracles were very frustrating, though, for the Pharisees. How could they be so blind? Well, they loved the world more than they loved their Savior. They loved the world more than the Creator. Their center was going in another direction towards money, towards prestige, and they loved the season of sin more than they loved God. They had a log in their eye, and it was too difficult for them to say, I need to go on a different path. Sin was pleasant. This left them trapped like senseless animals, unable to put two and two together. Really, you see this happening, and you equate this with the demonic world. Psalm 92 reveals how foolish we become when we reject the works of God. Psalm 92, I'm quoting the King James here because uh, I like the word picture in this. O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. A brutish man knoweth not, neither doth a fool understand this. See, people who cannot contemplate God are a lot like senseless animals. They're like brute beasts. People who cannot see their Creator, they're, they're like animals that know nothing about, like all they know is the pasture and all they know is mating season. That's all they know. They're going about life, they're on the great circle of life, the train is just going, and I'm here for the ride. It's quite a pathetic picture, actually, but I understand it. I mean, I get weary in this world. I get exhausted just like everyone else, and you know, you can be stressed out, and I am a weird person who likes to look at things and imagine things, like looking at an open field with cows and thinking, oh, wouldn't it just be better to be a cow? Right? Carefree. Just carefree. You know, and as I daydream there, you know, the bull looks up at me, says, you know, I've got this green pasture. I've got this cow beside me. What more could I want? What other being could enjoy life more? Those dumb cows are oblivious that one day they will walk through a turnstile and the butcher will be there. Many people are existing in a persistent vegetative state. Just passing through. Passing through to what? God is just and He must punish sin, but He is also merciful because He absorbed the punishment that we deserve on that cross. If we have faith to look to the cross... He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit to be able to see the world in a whole new way. That we are living with a purpose of eternity in view. We have the hope and the stillness of our soul that recognizes that when the trump resounds, the Lord will descend. Faith in His mercy brings newness of life by the Holy Spirit. Some illnesses are designed to prepare people for awakening. You may remember I've shared at times gone by, my grandfather had polio at age 30. And I believe it was a merciful act of God 
to humble him, to prepare his eyes to be open, to, to respond to the gospel, to, to respond by faith. When my grandfather became a Christian, something remarkable happened. He, he, his whole worldview changed, and he started seeing, like going to church, and like he would hear scriptures read and understand it, and then he would, he would talk about that with others, and then you know, some people who he used to, to associate with got, like, jarred. What happened to Sherwin Banks? He began to speak differently. He became united in baptism with a new community of faith, newness of life. He woke up. By comparison, he had been living in a persistent, if you will, vegetative state, just going through the motions, doing the same old things. He was like living in a coma. By comparison, though, he had been formerly dead, but now he is alive. And my grandfather passed away in 1994, and he is now more alive than he ever was in this world. Thankfully, his spiritual PVS was not irreversible. Has God mercifully made your heart, your life hard recently? You may have a rough go, and you may be having a rough go right now because God wants to catch your attention, to cause you to awaken. Maybe you have someone on your heart and on your mind. I want to encourage you. Pray. Pray that He will open the eyes, He will open those ears, and He will loosen that tongue. He's able to save with very, very little effort, and He is able to awaken without any limits. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for time in the Word. I pray, Father, that we would be encouraged to, to look to you to realize that you can engage the lives of those we love, to open hearts, to turn people from sin. Help us to be instruments in your hands, to be a voice of truth and gospel love to those who we care for. Even those who appear to be looking at the world differently than us and seem to set themselves against us, Lord, may we not react in anger towards them, but that we would look at them with eyes of compassion. There are many in our community who are not aware, and they think maybe like the Apostle Paul that they are doing good by hurting us. Lord, I pray, Father, that they would be, have their eyes opened as beautifully as Paul's, and it would be for your glory that we pray this. And so we ask, Father, as we close our service, that you would be glorified with the realization that we know that if we were to die, uh, we would be instantly more alive. In your name we pray. Amen.